0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Exodus 13, 17 to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness, and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid, then you must take my bones with you from this place. They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day, and a pillar of fire to give them light at night, so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people.
1: Now this fall, if you've been with us, you know we're studying from the book of Exodus. And if you've been with us in prior weeks, you know that we have covered some of the major events that are well known in this particular narrative. The birth of Moses, the burning bush, the the ten Plagues culminating in the Passover. These stories are providing details to what many identify as the first major movement in the book of Exodus. That, that movement is the liberation of God's people, moving from slavery and oppression into, out of the land of Egypt. Now, the second section, where we're headed next, will detail the wandering of God's people in the wilderness. And some assert that that section begins after the Israelites cross the sea on dry land, culminating in the Song of Moses, a passage that we're going to explore next week as we conclude our study this fall before taking a pause for Advent. But many... Many consider the passage read earlier, the passage we're considering this morning, to be the beginning of that second movement or that second section. It's actually a very pivotal passage. It's six verses that are providing significant insight into how the Lord leads his people. The season of wandering in the wilderness. What we're going to be considering more of in the spring, not to steal the thunder of future sermons, it will be characterized by God's people being tested. Here's Exodus chapter 15, verse 25, as Moses cries out as the Israelites are in the midst of this wandering. So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. That theme of testing, it will play out repeatedly as the Israelites wander in the wilderness. Now that word tested, it's not referring to an examination to assess knowledge. The process of purifying a metal through heat and fire, that's called testing. Testing is a process of refining and maturing and, and purifying. How does the Lord lead his people into such testing? How does he prepare them? What marks his leadership? The six short verses we're focusing on this morning will provide insight into how God leads his people as they head into the wilderness, where they will be tested. So the title of the sermon this morning is Test Preparation. Now, the text isn't describing so much what God's people do to prepare but how God's people experience God preparing and leading them into a time of testing, into the wilderness, into trial and challenge. So as we consider how God leads his people, one of the things that's gonna become clear, God's leadership is not always the type of leadership we want. It might be unexpected, different than what we would like. We may have to be more patient. We may not understand the path. So our big idea as we think about how God leads his people is as God leads, he gives what is needed, but not always what is wanted. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open it up to the passage read earlier Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. I know we've been covering large sections of scripture. We're focusing on a very small passage this morning, so you'll be able to follow along easily. In the passage, as we explore this big idea, we're going to encounter three themes of how the Lord leads his people. Those three themes are going to be path, so the type of path God takes his people on, promise, how God roots his people in his promises, and presence, how God is present with his people. So let's start by gaining some insight into path. What can we learn from the text about the path God takes his people on as he leads, as he prepares them for testing? Here's verses 17 and 18 in chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said the people will change their minds And return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. What the text is saying here is that God did not lead the Israelites on the shortest, on the shortest path from point A to point B. They took a weird sort of route, something abnormal. It was not the simplest way to get from Egypt to where they were going. God recognized even though the Israelites, even though they were in battle formation, even though they had what they had was sufficient, they weren't quite ready for the challenge of battling an enemy. Rather than believed God had prepared them and fight courageously, they would turn back as cowards. And so to move God's people from point A to point B, the way God led them, it wasn't the shortest route. The path he took them on was protective and prudent, but it wasn't a prudence and protection that ultimately prevented pain. It's one that led to maturity and growth and refining. Because even though the path God led them on prevented defeat by the Philistines, something we're gonna explore next week, the longer path that he leads them on brings them to where they will be cornered, where they'll be hemmed in by the Egyptians to face utter defeat at the edge of the sea. The the situation God is leading them into, it is actually more perilous. It's a place where they will have no choice but to step forward in faith, to depend on God for deliverance, to trust God for rescue and victory, the path God leads his people on. It's prudent and protective, but... Its end goal is not to avoid suffering and sorrow. One of the critiques that many offer currenting parent excuse me, one of the critiques that many offer current parenting strategies is that parents try to make the route from child to adult as simple as possible. To to get to adulthood, rather than allow children to experience struggle and potential failure, many will eliminate barriers and obstacles to try to prevent pain. Some of you may be familiar with a term called bulldozer parenting. Bulldozer parents knock down every obstacle to help their children succeed. A parent's desire is for a child to avoid suffering and sorrow, but in so doing, a child avoids testing and refining and a process of maturity. God does not lead his people like a bulldozer parent, he leads, he leads them and moves them towards growth and maturity. That type of path is not the path many of us want. There is this teaching that is seeped in to to much of Christianity. If God loves his children, he will make things as simple as possible for them. That's what we want. We want God to be like a bulldozer parent, to eliminate obstacles and barriers. But that's not the picture given to us of how God leads his people in Scripture. As God leads, he gives what is needed but not always what is wanted. Romans chapter five, verses three and four says this of God's people. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This is centuries after the Exodus. The the Apostle Paul is writing and he's saying, rather than bulldoze obstacles to move people from point A to point B, the Lord uses a path that includes affliction to refine. That's the path he leads us on, to produce hope and trust in God's character and God's power. God does not lead like a bulldozer parent. God allows his sons and daughters to experience affliction, God engages a more complex path than we might think would be easiest. Perhaps that involves a phone call, giving us news that we don't want to hear. Perhaps it involves a loved one pulling away and withdrawing. Perhaps that involves us not experiencing a job or a role that we were hoping to step into. The path that God leads us on, he leads us in a direction that is sometimes difficult and challenging. When we buy into the teaching, God should lead like a bulldozer parent. When we experience trial and challenge, Our faith tends to be undermined, sometimes destroyed. Our trust in God's power and character, it is wounded and deteriorates. But such teaching that the path for growth is the simplest path from point A to point B, it is not biblical. And so God's people rejoice, as the book of James says, when we face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So as the Lord leads, as the Lord prepares his people, as he matures them, the test preparation he offers is what we need, but not always what we want. The path is far more complex It is challenging rather than reject such a path. May we receive that path with joy. Now let's move from the theme of path to the theme of promise. Here's verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. So so this verse is referencing something that was said at the end of the book of Genesis. Now one of the things that that many of us may not know or remember or maybe connect the dots on is, is that the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they are in fact one book. Scholars refer to that one book as the Pentateuch, which simply means five. Those five books in one, they're establishing who God's people are. Where did they come from? Who is their God? What is their purpose? So that means that themes established in Genesis are very much playing out in Exodus. So the the setting of Exodus is very much established at the end of Genesis. And as one reads Genesis, one will recognize how there is some resolution, but there are a lot of loose ends. Genesis actually ends with a bit of a cliffhanger. Because much of what is established in Genesis, God's promise to have a seed born of woman to defeat Satan, God's promises to have a people living in the land of Canaan, not in Egypt. God's promises to set apart a people that would be a blessing to the nations. The resolution of those themes is very much in question. That, that lack of resolution is highlighted with a focus on a man named Joseph as he lays on his deathbed at the end of Genesis looking into the future. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. When Genesis ends, Joseph is looking into the future. God's promises to give them the land of Canaan. He's looking at those promises and he is trusting that God will fulfill his word. From the time Joseph says this in the Pentateuch to this verse here, chapter 13, verse 19, in the book of Exodus, there is a tension. Will Joseph's bones... Will they really leave the land of Egypt? How is that going to happen? In the beginning chapters of Exodus, they only build that tension. God's people become oppressed. The firstborn males who must survive for the promises of Genesis to be fulfilled, their very lives are threatened by Pharaoh. Some 400 years after Joseph died, Moses carrying his bones out of Egypt, demonstrate how God can be trusted to fulfill his promises. That's how he leads. Here's Pentateuch scholar John H. Salehammer describing the, the importance of scripture passages like this to the people of God. So the people for whom Moses wrote the Pentateuch needed to know, needed to more fully know what was about to happen to them. They needed to know who they were and the great purpose God had for them in this covenant. Thus, as part of the overall task of forming this people into a nation obedient to God, Moses wrote a history of the children of Israel. In this history... He explained to Israel who they were and why they had come to Egypt. Moreover, he showed them that they were not an ordinary people. They were descendants of a promised seed, heirs to the great covenant promises that God had made to their forefathers. Moses wanted Israel to know that what was happening to them was not simply a liberation from a particular bad period of enslavement. Rather, God was beginning to work in their lives and they were now becoming a major part of his program to redeem the world to himself. Selhammer is saying a verse like this, recognizing how God leads through faithfulness to his promises, it is establishing identity. Understanding your identity very much forms how you view yourself and how you view what's happening to you. Were the Israelites, as they were wandering in the desert, was that their ultimate identity? Wanderers, not knowing where they were going. Or were they God's people? Was that their ultimate identity? A people rooted in the promises and power of God. Some of you, you have taken on identity-rooted identity rooted in perhaps disease or dysfunction. You are a cancer patient. You have chronic fatigue syndrome. You have ADD or ADHD. Others of you, you have taken on an identity rooted in your failures. You're a bad husband. You're a bad wife or you're a bad Christian. You are an addict. The condition you have in the case of disease And the actions you take in the case of your failures, they certainly affect you. But taking on the identity, that's primarily how you view yourself. It affects you in deeper ways, how you think of yourself and how you experience particular moments. Maybe a tingling sensation or maybe a moment of fatigue or being short of breath or, or a moment that connects to your past failure. Filtering your your experiences through a particular identity. How you view yourself, it affects how you experience reality. Moses is establishing God's people in their ultimate identity. Your God, he fulfills his promises. He can be relied upon. And so you can have confidence. Even in the darkest of moments, you can trust that God has not abandoned you. You can trust that God sees and God knows and God hears and God remembers. Your God, he fulfills his promises. If that's part of your ultimate identity, you can have confidence when you are facing suffering and sorrow and sadness. Now, many of us, we want a God who fulfills promises today. We want it now. We don't want to wait This verse is saying Moses took the bones of Joseph with him to confirm God fills his promises. But it was 400 years, 400 years after trust in that promise was expressed. As God's people, are you okay with the reality that God fulfills his promises? But he doesn't do it on your timetable. He oftentimes doesn't do it immediately. As God leads, he gives what is is needed But not always what is wanted. We know that many of God's promises of redemption were fulfilled in Christ. He was the promised seed born of woman that crushed Satan's head. He was the promised seed of Abraham that became a blessing to the nations. He was the promised son of King David that ascended to a heavenly throne where his kingdom endures forever. And yet, some promises given to God's people have yet to be fully realized. In Revelation 21, the text says this, Then I heard a voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. There is a day promised in the future when Jesus will return and live with his people. Christians have been waiting for that day for nearly 2,000 years. Some of us, we are far too oriented to what we have experienced in the past, not getting what we want in situations in ministry, not getting what we want in our standing in the workplace, not getting what we want in scenarios in our marriage or circumstances as we raise our kids. As you're rooted in those experiences in the past, you give up hope that God will fulfill his promises in the future. I think about a a child. Many of you know him or her. Maybe it was you, maybe it is you today still. They're they're traveling in the car and they say, Mom, Dad, when are we going to get there? The the parent responds, We got about an hour left. Ten minutes later, Mom, Dad, when are we going to get there? Well, I mean, ten minutes ago we said an hour, so we have 50 minutes. Another 10 minutes goes by, mom, dad, when are we going to get there? Maybe, maybe this child is impatient, maybe, but I'm not so sure. That, that child could be grumbling and complaining, which children I'm not affirming. But on the other hand, that child might be experiencing a persistent excitement, An ongoing anticipation of a promise you have made as a parent, that that promise will be fulfilled. The child is anticipating the end of a trip that will have a joyous conclusion. The child trusts mom or dad to fulfill what they have said will happen. I wonder if we truly believe God fulfills his promises if we wouldn't embrace more of the disposition of that child. There will be an end to this journey, an exciting destination, anticipation, longing, expectation. As we wait for God to fulfill his promises, do we trust he will? Or do we complain and grumble? Do we become dejected where we no longer trust in the words of Scripture? Moses is inviting God's people to trust God's word and God's promises to continue to anticipate, to continue to expect. As God leads, he will fulfill his promises. He will do what he has said he will do. So as the Lord leads, the path isn't straightforward, and the promises of God can be trusted, even if they are not immediately fulfilled. Now let's turn to the theme of presence. Here's verses 20 through 22, they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people." So so what's taking place here is the Israelites are experiencing a manifestation of the Lord's presence. Similar to what Moses experienced with the the burning bush. This is not a sign. It's not a sign of the Lord's presence. It is an actual manifestation of the presence of the Lord. Some view this manifestation as a pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus coming down to earth pointing to a future day he will come down to earth more fully however the, the the presence is interpreted the people of god where god had withdrawn his presence after sin in the garden of eden now he's come down to be present with his people some of us as we think about leading leading as a parent or leading in an organization or leading in the community you know you don't want to lead through micromanagement. You don't want to be like a bulldozer parent. But, but you think the alternative to that is to be hands-off, to remove your presence. What's revealed in this section of Scripture, the Lord does not lead like a bulldozer parent, but he is not hands-off. He is present. Day and night he is present. And his presence for God's people, it provides calm in chaos. His presence helps God's people remember what matters most. His presence brings direction and guidance. And of course, sometimes his presence leads his people to experience courage and conviction in the midst of challenge. For many of us, more than a God who is present we want a God who will tell us exactly what to do and when to do it. I imagine many of you like YouTube videos that, that, that go along this type of trajectory. I've gotten into making some hol- fun holiday drinks. I love YouTube videos. They tell me exactly what to do, when to do it, and what to expect going forward. There's no surprises, well, at least in a good YouTube video. As God leads his people on a path towards fulfilling his promises, that's not how he leads them. He doesn't give them a step by step guide of exactly how to get where they're headed. Instead, he gives them his promises and his presence. As God leads, he gives them what is needed, but not always what is wanted. Now, in the Old Testament, God's presence was equated with a particular place or location. As God's people travel in the desert, it is associated with a pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. When God's people are established in the promised land, God's presence dwells in his temple To experience God's special presence, his particular presence, God's people would travel there. Moving forward to the Gospels, when Jesus dwelled on earth, the people living at the time, they experienced what what Scripture says, God with us. The living God was present at a particular location and place and time. But when Jesus died, that all changed. The, The Gospel writers record that in the temple, the place where God's presence dwelled, the curtain that separated the presence of God from the people of God, when Jesus died, it was torn in two. Because of the path Christ traveled, one of suffering and sorrow, because of the promises he fulfilled, you experience God's presence in a very real way. God's presence is no longer limited to a particular place for God's presence now dwells in his people. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter three. God's people living today at this particular moment in redemptive history, you do not have to go to a particular place to experience God's presence When we gather with God's people, when we gather to worship in community, we certainly experience God's presence differently. But we do not have to travel to a temple. We do not need to to go to a building to to experience what the ancient Israelites experienced. That presence in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. If you have trusted in Christ, that presence dwells in you. We do not need to seek out some radical retreat type experience to encounter God's presence. He dwells within his people. When we allow his presence to lead, we experience much of what the ancient Israelites experienced calm in the midst of chaos, conviction to trust as we encounter difficult circumstances, courage to step forward in faith. This is what his presence does. Earlier I said that sometimes we are far too oriented to what we have experienced in the past. It has far too much power over us. And if you spend time talking with me, you'll know this is coming from a guy who would say that many of us need to explore more of our story. Well, what happened to us in the past to better understand why we do the things we do today. But there comes a point in focusing on our past that we are not oriented to God's promises he has given in the past. And we are not oriented to the power of God's presence in the present. We don't trust God will fulfill his promises and we silence the power of his presence in our present moment. We must learn to experience the presence of the Lord. We must learn to be still. Mark Sayers, in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, (coughs) he describes how we allow, we often allow the anxious the anxious presence of others. We often allow our desire for quick fixes, what has become normal in our culture, to crowd out. And lead us to silencing the Lord's presence. Listen. We must learn to detect his voice before moving forward. This is a countercultural act in an anxious system. Which demands instant action. Quick fixes. And fast acting remedies for pain. Waiting on the Lord. Seeking his voice. It is an act of revolutionary stillness. The Lord leads his people, not through how-to videos or quick fixes, but through his presence. So these six verses, after God liberates the Israelites from oppression, the end of that first section, they provide insight for how the Lord leads his people. As we conclude, I have a couple questions for you. First, as you consider the way you lead others, maybe how you lead as a parent, maybe how you lead as someone who is married, maybe as a leader in First City Kids, or in a gospel community, or maybe how you lead in the workplace, or maybe it's it's as simple as how you advocate for something that you're concerned about or burdened for. That's a form of leadership. How do others experience your leadership? Do do they experience something that resembles the leadership of the Lord, or, or do they experience something else? Now, I know we are not the Lord. But, but we are image bearers. We, we are people made in his image. We are ambassadors for Christ. And so our leadership put, should point to the way he leads. Does the way you lead reflect more of a bulldozer parent? Does your leadership reflect someone who is prone to withdraw or isolate or is hands off? Are you willing to say hard things? Are you a a person of your word pointing to holiness or simply comfort and pleasure? Did your presence bring calm in the midst of chaos? As, As you lead, as others relate to you, do people experience a representation of how the Lord leads or something else? And perhaps this gets into my second question as we conclude. Do you follow the leadership of the Lord? Or are you prone to resist such leadership? So last week, I had the pleasure of hanging out with our First City youth. As we gathered in the back before we headed out, Steph Jackson was our leader. I brought up the end of the line to make sure all the students made it from the auditorium to the classroom. I mean, we don't want any kids getting lost or distracted along the way to their destination. When we left the auditorium, rather than go directly to the classroom, Steph led us on a journey in the cafeteria. We went from one table to the next table, back to another table, back to another table. We were not going in a straight line from point A to point B. I began to question what was happening. I think I was in the back of the line with like Sophia Mock and Emma Wayman, and they probably heard me grumbling. Where are we going? Do we always weave between the cafeteria tables rather than go directly to, to, to the classroom? What is Steph doing? Well, I probably didn't say that out loud. That's what I was thinking. Rather than receiving Steph's leadership, I mean she was present. She she was going on a particular path. She had said we were going to, to the classroom. I was critiquing and criticizing and questioning. Do you follow the leadership of the Lord? Are you more prone to criticize and critique and question? Are you willing to receive what you sometimes do not want? Are you willing to travel a challenging path? One that is not rooted in our performance, but is difficult. The way of Christ that that requires death of self and living out principles of self-denial. Or do you go your own way? Do you choose your own path? Do you silence God's presence? I know we all fail at following the Lord faithfully. Jesus was the only one who did such a thing without fault. But that does not mean that we become hands-off in how we follow. We don't become disengaged. We confess how we criticize and how we question and how we critique. The path we embrace it includes wisdom and requires courage and faith and rejects cowardice. It's a path sinners are welcome, but it's also a path where sin is rejected. When we follow the, the leadership of the Lord, we seek to push in, to learn wisdom and truth from God's word. We want to know what he has promised and instructed about how we are to live because God fulfills his promises. We, we want to experience the presence of the Spirit. A presence that affirms that we are forgiven in Christ, that brings calm in chaos and moves us to courageously step out in faith to what sometimes seems challenging and perilous. And we embrace a path that is not often straightforward, but it is filled with trial and challenge and sometimes suffering and sorrow. May we be a people who receive and trust in the leadership of the Lord. Let's pray.